0: Your Bible should naturally just open to Matthew chapter five this morning. This is our fourth week in the Sermon on the Mount. If you can find your place in Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna begin reading in verse 33, where Jesus says, again, you have heard it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Some versions say perform all your oaths. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, it's God's throne, or the earth, it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, or some say the evil one, Satan, the father of all lies. Verse 38, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your clothing or your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard it said of old, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is heaven. Now notice this, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Matthew, by the way, was a tax collector. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the idea of sinners do the same? This one will grab you. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. People sitting there that day, they probably just gave up on that one, right? So, um, like I said, this is our fourth week in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've hit that portion where, oh my gosh, everybody has heard these words. You could probably quote them. Uh, turn the other cheek, go the second mile. It seeped into our culture. There are people living today don't even know this comes from the Bible. And I've said it every week: the Sermon on the Mount is misunderstood. Certainly misunderstood by the world if you pull it out of context, and probably misunderstood by most Christians. And it's misunderstood because six times Jesus uses this phrase: "You have heard it said of old. Now I say unto you." So there's kind of like this idea, he's detaching from the law, which they loved or the Old Testament. And he's kind of laying down some new teaching or new doctrine. And some people think this is like the Christian law. And so we're getting away from the old covenant and and nothing could be farther from the truth. Listen, when Jesus says you have heard it said of old, he's talking about their interpretation of the law. I'll give you an example. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's nothing about the Sabbath. And yet, we see all through the Gospels, uh, Jesus talking about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was one law. It was a beautiful law, by the way. Uh, It's like God saying, hey, take a day off, have fun, do nothing. Beautiful, wonderful, right? We should abide by that. We should keep that law. Six days you shall work. You guys get a weekend because of Jesus, the resurrection. Six days you shall work, but the seventh is a day of rest. Why? Because in six days God created the earth, and the seventh day He rested. Be like your Father in heaven is the idea. By this day, the Jewish leaders had 485 laws on how to keep the Sabbath. How would you like to live through that? 485 laws. See, that was their interpretation. There was the Mishnah, the Talmud, there were Targums, there were, there were so many addendums to the law. And that's why Jesus said, you know, uh, unless your righteousness would exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, there's gotta be something better. You'll never even see the kingdom I'm talking about. Now, one final time, I wanna draw your attention to verse 18, where Jesus said, "'Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle," that's like dotting an I or crossing a T, "'shall pass away from the law till all is accomplished.'" Now, is this hyperbole? Is this like us saying, oh, that'll never happen, like like hell will freeze over before any of this happens? Is that what Jesus is saying? Like, oh my gosh, the law, it'll be around, till heaven and earth pass away. Or, did Jesus really mean what he said? Will heaven and earth one day pass away? And I think the latter, I think yes, one day heaven and earth will pass away. When we get to Matthew 24, that'll be the second longest teaching we have from Jesus. And he will expound on The end of Jerusalem, the end of the age, the end of the world, His coming. But there was a man that was listening to the Sermon on the Mount, his name is Peter. He's a fisherman. So what Peter would write 30 years later in 2 Peter, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy contact and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. Now, watch the redundancy. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. This is a fisherman talking about nuclear fission 2,000 years ago. The separating of an atom, what we know as just utter destruction Peter said, there's a new world coming. And so when Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, he meant what he said. What he was saying is there's a new world order coming and man's not gonna bring it about. This will be God's order, what God desired from the beginning of time. Uh, Climate change does not end life on our planet. You all know that? Now I'm, I'm all for cleaning up the environment. I don't think we should be wasteful. But when I read the words of Jesus, I think Jesus is saying the greatest threat to our civilization is not ecological. It's philosophical, it's moral. We're trying to clean up the earth, but we're ruining our kids, their psyche, their mentality. People don't know their right hand from their left hand, they're stumbling in the dark. Jesus said, there is now an entrance to a kingdom of wholeness and rightness with God at the center. Now, I love when God does this. We're right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been dealt a cultural moment. Y'all complain, I don't talk about cultural events enough, so I'm gonna talk about a cultural event. All right, you could all be happy today. Um, no roast pastor for lunch. So the cultural moment is the John Gruden emails. Um, if you're not a football fan or a follower of the NFL, John Gruden is the coach of the Los Angeles, or was the coach of, excuse me, the Las Vegas Raiders. And uh, the NFL did an investigation in the Washington football team, 650,000 emails they looked at. And the news came out two Fridays ago that John Gruden had written an email with a racial epithet against the head of the labor union who was black. And so that was a firestorm over the weekend. And when I heard it, the first thing I thought about is if John Gruden wrote that in an email, I'll bet he wrote emails about white people too, because I know the heart of man. And of course, by Monday, that's exactly what happened. He had written about gays and women and the head of the NFL, the commissioner who was white. And of course, he was dismissed as he should have been. Uh, What he wrote was indefensible. We're not here to cast judgment on John Gruden. But I sat back and I thought, You know, it's funny, when I say it's funny, I'm talking about Psalm 2, where it's sad, like God looks back and he can almost just laugh. To watch the world police itself morally. I mean, use some common sense. The NFL is a $10 billion industry fueled by beer sales and gambling. And they are coming down morally on a coach, listen, who coaches in Las Vegas. They made a decision to put a team in the most immoral city that we call Sin City. And then get this, word came out late this week out of the 650,000 emails. He's the only one, he's the only one. Uh, I'll go with what his quarterback said. When the announcement of John's emails came out, every executive player and coach in the NFL went home and hit the delete button all night. So why does this cultural moment speak into what we're talking about? Because everybody listening to Jesus, the religious leaders were doing the same thing. They were washing the outside of cups. They were tithing down to to the spices in their pantry. But inwardly, their hearts were immoral. They hadn't committed adultery, but they've lusted at other women. They hadn't murdered anyone, but anger was in their hearts. And so when Jesus comes here, he begins to talk about a higher law the love of another kind I talked about last week, where God takes out the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Uh, We we love the gospel of John, all of us. We tell new believers to read it, here's why. When John writes his gospel, he's already familiar with some of the work of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so the largest body of teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't record any of it. 90% of what John writes is original. But you know what he does record? he records an encounter that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus, the religious leader in Israel, the greatest teacher in Israel. You know what he tells Nicodemus? You must be born again. Now, he told the rich young ruler, go sell everything. But he tells this learned man, this moral man, the master of the law, you gotta be born again. You gotta start all over. Nicodemus had to be in his 70s. He wouldn't have been in the position of power he was in. He goes, how can I be born again? I I can't start all over. What he was really saying is, I've been in religion all my life. And Jesus said, yes, you can. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. And what Jesus was saying is, look, we don't need a stint in our heart. We need a transplant. And it comes through the new birth. A poverty of spirit. Now, I want to hit the pause button right here to make sure we all understand this. Your righteousness exceeding the scribes and the Pharisees isn't perfection. It's actually the opposite. It's a humility of spirit that, God, I need you. I'm going to read out of Ephesians chapter 2, two classes of people. And see if you can identify yourself. It's kind of a was now. In Ephesians, it says, you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, with his great love which he loved us even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together, that in the ages to come he might show his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are his workmanship. We are his poems being read of all men. Jesus gives us a was-now condition. And when I read this, I think of the... Parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. We all know the parable. And it it kind of runs the same course here. There's always two sets of people. So here, there's kind of a was now condition, but in the parable of the prodigal son, there was a lost brother and a brother who was always at home. See, the lost brother's condition is easy, isn't it? He's in a pig pen. He's broke. Uh, we look at lost people, they know they're lost, right? They're strung out, burnt out, sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? We get the condition of the lost brother. Oh, man. See, see, it's the brother who is always there that's the bigger problem. This probably makes up 50% of our church. Not our church, but the church universal or anyone going to church. What did the older brother do when he found out that the fatted calf was killed because the younger brother came home? He was angry and revealed his true colors when he said to his father, I've grunted and grinded all these years for you and I didn't even get a kid goat. See, he revealed his motive. Serving God was a grind, a struggle. And in that crowd that day were two types of people. Where are you? Do you have a was now condition? Can you say, I once was this and now I'm this? Because if you can say, now I'm this, God has given you a new heart and you can walk through these commandments. Now, I wanna share this because it's true and we need to hear it. Even as Christians with a brand new heart, our hearts get hard. Uh, Our hearts get hard, amen, right? Anybody, our hearts get hard. See our hearts get hard and we begin to fall into the things of the Sermon on the Mount. We get lustful and angry and cynical and sinful. So what's the remedy? Well, for years we had a potter that would come here and preach and he had an actual wheel. And so I probably sat through a hundred of his presentations with multiple services. And so I have these memories of the wheel going around. And he would always take a sponge while his wife was singing, and he would pour water on the clay so he can mold it. Then every once in a while, he would bring out clay that was rock hard, and he'd slam it down. It would break in pieces, and he would pour water on it and soften it up. And so the Bible says that you and I, if we're, you know, we have to guard our hearts out of it flow the issues of life. And the Bible talks about the washing of the water of the word. This is why church is so important, Bible study is so important, is that when the water of God's word washes over us, the cynicism and the rot and all those things, we become pliable again. That's why when Shem said, be still and know that I am God, we need this reflection with God, this quiet time, this pouring in that our hearts would be washed and that they would be softened. Now, with all that background, we get into the three things this morning. Now, the first one, verses 33, uh, down to verse 37, we think, my gosh, is there any application to us? Uh, I don't swear by Jerusalem or the temple, and I don't think I've made an oath in a long, long time, okay? So, what's the 2021 application here? What's Jesus driving at? Well, He's driving at the ninth commandment, right? Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. Think that's applicable? I remember hearing John MacArthur saying on well, Monday morning if everybody went out and told the truth the whole world would collapse. The whole house of cards would come down. That's how much dishonesty there is. Now when Jesus said you have heard of old, again he's talking about the interpretation of the law and the rabbis really went to ta- town on this one. They looked at lying and they thought, well there's, there's gotta be a scale to lying, right? Remember, uh, for those of us who are Catholic, and it's probably half of us, there were venial and mortal sins. Remember that? So a venial sin was like a little white lie you told, or you maybe stole a pencil from work. But then the mortal sins were the big ones, right? And there was all kinds of differentiation and prayers for all of them. Um, That's what they had. They, They had written so much on this one sin of lying that people were confused. So you know what people would do? Uh, when they would come in contact with someone or had to make a promise, they would swear. Remember this when we were little? Swear to God. Swear to God. Swear to God. Right? We do that all the time. Uh, or you walk in a room and you tell someone something and you say, look, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I'll swear on my mother's grave. Right? The minute somebody says that or the reason they're saying that is because they generally lie. Right? See, an honest person would never say, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's grave, right? And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, yesterday I got Lee Strobel's new book in the mail, The Case for Heaven, I've been waiting all summer for it. Uh, Lee shared with me some insights. It is so good, I'm on chapter three. But as I was reading Lee's book and studying for today, it brought me back 20 years ago when I heard Lee preach one time on this topic. And you know Lee's a researcher, right? He worked for the Chicago Tribune. And he did some research and he found out there was this captain in England 300 years ago. His name was Captain Fudge. Now, this is a real story, and this isn't why you get Fudge on the boardwalk, right? Um, captain Fudge was notorious for telling lies, tall tales, and exaggerating. And so when uh, his workers would hear him talking, they would all whisper, He's fudging, he's fudging, fudge, right? And this became kind of caught on in England and even made its way to America where they say if you ran around to schoolyards and kids were playing games or marbles, they would say, hey, no fudging, no fudging, right? Now today, politicians fudge, journalists fudge, pastors fudge, right? Our evangelistic numbers of attendance and who got saved and all that, right? Um, just for giggles, I jotted down a bunch of fudges. So, uh, anyone ever hear this one? Yeah. As <laughs> soon as they tell you the doctor will be with you in a minute, you better look for Sports Illustrated highlights, Reader's Digest. It's a half an hour, uh, at least. Yeah, hey, let's get lunch sometime, yeah? That means no one's ever gonna, you're gonna be ghosted, right? No, no one's ever, uh, this is a modern one. Some of the older people don't live like this. Young people don't carry cash, ever, but they always wanna go out to eat. And you know what they say? Oh, I'll Venmo you, all right, yeah. How many girls have heard this on a college campus? I'll respect you in the morning. Whenever someone needs two minutes of your time, book an hour, all right? Book an hour. As long as both of you shall live, I do, I do, I do. 50% of all our marriages end in divorce. Uh, You know what the checks in the mail used to mean? That you were writing it out as somebody was telling you or asking you, did you send it? You were literally, oh yeah, yeah, the checks in the mail, you were writing it out. Right? Every parent, right? Every person's ever been fired by a boss this is gonna hurt you more than it hurts me. This is the killer. Oh yeah, I'll be praying for you. Call me at any time. Just anytime you want, just break into whatever I'm doing, just call yeah. I'm here for you. Call me at any time. Now why do we do this? Well, we mean well, I'm sure, but we fudge and we fudge and we fudge. Um, and that's why we have to say look, I, I promise, I swear my mother's great. Someone said oaths are a sign. We live in a world of lies. Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't make vows, we shouldn't have oaths, we shouldn't have contracts. I mean, I remember the old days where my dad would walk in and it was a handshake deal. And he would walk into a place and he was good for the money and even even if I went in, they knew my dad would pay. It's not the world we live in anymore. Here's what Jesus is saying. When it comes to the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom, that God's people should be truth tellers. That for the sake of the community that we're building, whether it's home or church or whatever it is, that truth telling has to be at a premium. It really does. Fudging is going to get us in a lot of trouble, is what Jesus is saying. And and here's what he's, you know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, if we really have the nature of God, if we've really been born again, if God's really our Father, God is a promise-keeping God. The book of Hebrews says God can't lie. At his core, God is a truth-teller. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you've been at this church any length of time, I use this illustration all the time because it means so much to me. My stepfather was an alcoholic, and at night when he was drinking, he would promise us the world. We would go to the best schools and colleges, and he would buy us this and that, make all these promises that would all be forgotten in the morning. Jesus said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And so I vowed when I became a Christian, that's the motto I would live by. That my Father in heaven is a provider. He provides safety and sanctuary, and that's the dad I wanted to be. So a little math on Sunday morning. I know you're all not good at math. Sunday morning math is always easy. Does anybody know what an integer is? Okay, It's it's not a whole number, right? It's a fractional number. Uh, That's where the word integrity comes from. When the Bible speaks of integrity, it's talking about wholeness. And people always come and say, hey, Jesus didn't die to make us moral. Well, he did die to make you holy and he died to make you like God. And his desire for you is to be whole. His desire for you is to be like him. A person who fudges and a person who lies is fractured. Now look, we all have bad moods and bad days. But if someone's wondering who's walking through the door today, you are not living in wholeness, and not living in the integrity that God has for you. Now, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by the temple, what's the deal with all this? Well, it's like being in church, right? Uh, Maybe before you were a Christian, even now, like who would ever lie in church or steal in church? The idea was, my gosh, we're in church of all places. See, that was the idea. When they would say they were swearing by Jerusalem, they were saying, look, we are are telling the truth as if God were in the room, that his presence was here. And by the way, this is the antidote for bearing false witness and lying, that you and I would live as if God was always in the room. See, religion for the people sitting on the lawn and for most people in our world today is, You know, while we're in church, while we're talking about religious things, but when we're outside of that, we kind of live our own way. If we lived as if God was always in the room, I wonder what our lives would look like. Don McClure told a story about when his kids became teenagers, he walked in his son's room one time, and on the wall was a picture of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Uh, And back in this day, you know, kids put posters on the room. I don't know if they still do that now. And he's like, oh my gosh, like what's going on here? And where till your mother sees this, you know, the whole shooting match. And they're like, oh, dad, it's no big deal. We like the Cowboys, just cheerleaders, no big deal. He goes, okay, if it's no big deal, let's go down to the dining room where we eat, and let's take down the picture that's on the wall, and we'll put the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders on the wall. So whenever we eat, you know, that's what we'll look at. And you know what Don's illustration was, right? If it's okay, then it should be viewed by all. Like, in other words, the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders presence could be there, and you kind of get it, right? The idea is if we live in the idea that we're in God's presence, it changes everything. And I wanna say this, because we're gonna get to this scripture in Matthew. Jesus said you will be judged for every idle word spoken. Not every action. Every idle word is a word no one heard but God. Now John Gruden found that out, but how many are still left uncovered? And this is why I love grace. This is why grace changes everything. A true believer will never be judged for every idle word because Jesus Christ will stand in our midst. His grace covers us and it covers a multitude of sins. And this is why we have an advocate with the Father and we can go to the throne room of grace. God, I am so sorry. I should have never fudged, I should have never lied. God, make me whole and His grace covers us. And we become salt and light because we're truth tellers. And Jesus said it matters in God's community. Real quick. and. I'm gonna talk more about this than the other two. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more comes from the evil one. You know what Jesus is saying? If you've gotta keep talking, you're probably covering up, right? Like in other words, if you have to convince somebody that you're honest, you're probably not. And the reason you're talking is because they don't believe you, right? Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Let, let me say one thing about this, because this could help somebody. You know what I've learned? Never say someone's no for them. Do you ever want to ask somebody something, but you're like, ah, they'll never do it, right? So Al Panero is our operations manager. For 10 years, Al served in ushers and greeters and Sizzling Summer. He was bet one of our best volunteers. And so when we went to Israel, I had offered Al a free trip for his service. And and my agenda was somewhere in Israel, I was gonna ask Al to quit his job and come on staff and be our operations director. And uh, I did the typical, right? Every day I was busy, but in some way I was afraid to ask because I thought Al would say no. And we were running out of trip and uh, we got to the garden tomb in Jerusalem. And all the people fanned out, we had given our talk, we had celebrated communion, and Al and I were kind of alone in one area. (laughs) And I said, Al, I did not strategically plan this. We're looking at a stone rolled away in Jerusalem, and I'm gonna ask you to come on staff at church. This is not a setup. And I asked Al, and he had said yes. Do you know what my life consists of? Hearing no all the time. Hearing no all the time. Had Al said no, it would have broken my heart and I would have moved on. But Al said yes. We call it the big ask. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't say someone's no for them. Now, I wanna say another crucial thing about this. Some of us need to say yes to good things. Yes to great things, yes to spiritual things. Too many of us are stressed out, overscheduled, scheduled fill in the blanks, because we just keep saying yes all the time because we think it's for God and we think it's a good thing. My wife's side of the family has this history of doing like two or three things in one day and never telling the other people they did the other things. And I keep preaching, we need to say no to two or three things and do one thing well. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. All right, you have heard it was said, verse 38, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? So we've all heard this. Um, So what they had heard of in this, and it's famous, these were the laws of retaliation, right? And God actually gave these laws to limit retaliation. So here's how it worked. If I borrow your lawnmower and break it, I buy you a new lawnmower, okay? That was God's law. The reason why God needed that law is because the way people lived in the past was, I broke your lawnmower, you burned down my house. Then I murder your son and then we have a war, the Hatfield McCoys. So God said, no, 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 that's not how it works. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus came along and said, here's the real spirit of the law, non-retaliation. And he puts it in a cultural context. If someone asked you to go a mile, go a second. So in that day, the Romans occupied Israel. They could walk up to an, a, a Jewish citizen, plunk down their gear and say, walk it a mile for me. And you know how that works, grumble and complain, oh my gosh, these Romans, this is horrible. Jesus said, go too, right? Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, I fail at this one more than anything. Uh, it drives me bananas, the unjust things that you and I live through. What God's driving here, again, is the heart of, what Jesus is driving out of here is the heart of God. Um, one of the words in the Old Testament has said, H-E-S-E-D, it's the loving kindness of God. This is the compassionate, overwhelming love of God. Michael Card, who spent a career studying his said, said, it's when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. The person whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. The father and the prodigal son has said, he gave, he gave him the of calf, the ring on his finger, the cloak on his back. God, who has given us everything, the kingdom, the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. What Jesus is saying, you and I, who have received so much, should be willing to give so much. And I love that phrase there. God lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. That's God. He does it every day. People that are mocking him and abusing others, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There's a great theological truth there. Now, notice what the last verse says. Give to the one who begs and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So are we to be doormats, right? Uh, can we defend ourselves? Uh, can anybody take advantage of us? No, the Proverbs speak about this. Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. But this one jumps out at me because uh, wherever we go, people beg, right? Like everywhere now. And every person in this room has to make a decision what to do, right? I was at the zoo one time and uh, someone was begging and uh, I was going to walk by and I had all my reasons and you had most of them too and uh, I felt like God stopped me and said go back and put $5 in that bucket and I, of course I wrestled with God and I felt like God impressed on me that you don't see beggars enough. And I was going through the mental gymnastics, they're gonna buy alcohol, they're gonna buy drugs, they're gonna do this, they're gonna do that. And God impressed on me, how many beggars do you really see in the area that you live? And then God gave me the scripture, it rains on the just and the unjust. It was raining on that person that day and God was using me as a conduit. Now, there have been times where I'm in Egypt and you can't get from here to that door without begging, people begging. I mean, and you're actually coached not to give. And so I don't want to get into all that. And all I'm saying is, this is where a relationship with God comes in. You make your own choice. I can't tell you to give the beggars, I can't tell you not to give them. I'm saying there's a higher law you and I all live by, and it's the law of said. Last one, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, tax collectors do that. And so do the Gentiles. Boy, did Jesus ever live this out on how he treated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the avowed enemies of Israel. And they're the heroes of all Jesus' stories and parables. And he sits with a woman at the well, Uh, For those of you who watch The Chosen, this is my favorite one, where Jesus has met the woman at the well in the next episode for about 40 minutes. You have no idea where this is going. Jesus and the disciples are in Samaria. He's making John and his brother plow a field and there's no idea where this is going. And all of a sudden the penny drops and the field that they're plowing is the man who beat the man up on the road where the Samaritan came and took him to an inn. And at the end of the episode, they come to Jesus and said, why are we plowing this field? And Jesus said, some things take a long time. Some things take a long time. You're plowing a man's field who doesn't deserve it. There's a God who loves this man, and as long as he takes a breath, there's a God who believes the outcome would be his salvation. And the metaphor is, this field could take a long, long time. Take a lot of seeds. Last week in Ardmore, Jesus said it was hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. But he said what's impossible with man is possible with God. And I shared last Sunday night, never give up on anyone. Never give up on the hardened, hardest person you know. Because God never gives up with them. The story of the prodigal son, the father is standing there and we're never told how long he was standing. But I know if it was my son, I would have been standing a long time. We'll never know how long he prayed, how long he believed that the God of heaven would bring a famine, bring him to his senses. How long do people pray for us? Bear along with us. Jesus said, no one's beyond God's reach. And if those in the kingdom would be salt and light, man, this is difficult. Because in the light of a pandemic and an election, we probably spend most of our time railing against our enemies. And Jesus said, man, we got to get on a different track, a different agenda, because the kingdom is moving somewhere. Oh, Pastor Bob, you don't understand. This is a, yeah, I understand. They were under Roman occupation. Roman occupation. Yeah, I understand. I understand cultural moments. <laughs> to paraphrase Jesus, we can be better than this. As your Father in heaven is perfect, you can be perfect.